This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, on this rainy Saturday morning, and I thank you for joining us. Uh, This is our 26th consecutive program where we are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a lot of information out there, um, but the most staggering are the numbers, the statistics. In in Connecticut, we have 52,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 with over 4,400 deaths. In the United States, we have over 6 million confirmed cases with over 184,000 deaths. And globally, we have over 24 million confirmed cases and over 835,000 deaths. I never thought that on August 29th, I would be telling you that we have 184,000 dead Americans from a virus that we have no control over at this point in time. I'm fired up, and I'll tell you why I'm fired up, is because there are people in Washington whose salaries we pay. They are our employees, and this week we listened to them spouting lies to us. Let's start. The first thing is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, the people we pay to protect us from infectious diseases, decides to change the policy on COVID-19 testing. What was published on June 13th are that you should be tested for COVID-19 if you have signs and symptoms of COVID or if you have no symptoms but have had a recent contact with someone who has a confirmed case of COVID-19. The others go on, the other criteria, no symptoms and no contact, but still in the early identification under special settings, such as healthcare workers, um, ways of tracking spread and confirmed with cases that are confirmed with no further symptoms. So this week they decided they were going to publish new guidelines that did not get much press until people found out about it, in which they say they changed criteria number two. They're saying now you do not need to test people who have no symptoms, even if they had a recent contact with someone who has a confirmed virus for more than 15 minutes. So if you are in a room and exposed to someone for more than 15 minutes who has a confirmed case of COVID-19, they're saying you don't need to be tested. This raises the question of how are we going to trace asymptomatic carriers? When we go back to the beginning, right, our first show, we talked about one of the things I told you was the only person you can trust in that task force was Dr. Anthony Fauci. He has been criticized, okay, but so far, who has followed science? 
This is science. What are the basic things? You know, most listeners to this show know this because I must say it on every show. Identification of the virus, isolation of the virus, and contact tracing. Those are the three basic principles to any epidemic or pandemic. That's public health. That's how you proceed until you have a treatment or a vaccine. If you don't test, you don't identify. So you have now violated the first standard of good public health. And that's what the Centers for Disease Control are telling us today. You don't need to test if you've been exposed. Wrong. That's so wrong. I, honestly, after listening to this, I am convinced that most of the regular listeners to this program can run the CDC better than these guys. And I mean that seriously because I will tell you that the listeners to this show, the regular listeners who I get emails from, questions from, are intelligent people. They're not playing politics like these folks are. They are interested in staying healthy and protecting their families, as we should all do be doing right now as taxpayers. So when we see these employees, right, these federal government employees violating the standards that we set up, such as wearing masks, social isolation, okay, those are standards of public health. When we see them holding rallies, okay, conventions where they ignore these rules, I've got something to say. I'm the employer. I've been an employer of people. I continue to employ people. And if they don't do, they don't follow the rules that have been set up, they deserve to be fired. Now, people have said to me, well, you know, the protesters aren't doing that. I don't pay the protesters. They're not my employees. I don't trust protesters to go out and do what's safe for my family. But I do trust the federal government. And right now they have violated that trust. We're going to take a short break because we're going to get back. We haven't even touched on convalescent plasma. Something, again, the listeners of this program are very familiar with and how we're going to proceed with convalescent plasma. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. The beginning of this show, I told you I was fired up. Let's get to the next point. The Food and Drug Administration. Right. Dr. Stephen Hahn is the commissioner. He is part of the COVID-19 task force. And recently this week, he approved the use of convalescent plasma, the emergency use of convalescent plasma. This was part of a press conference on a Sunday afternoon. Now, we've been discussing convalescent plasma on this program since the early days. And why? Well, because convalescent plasma is something we know about since 1901, when Dr. Emil von Behren used it to treat diphtheria. He actually won the Nobel Prize in 1901. So this is not something new. 
It's basically taking the antibodies, the proteins from the blood of someone who has had a virus, in this case COVID-19, and injecting them into someone with a compatible blood type who has the disease with the hope that those that transfer of antibodies will fight off the virus. We have been using this since the beginning of this pandemic with limited results. We have used it purposefully in people who are critically ill because we don't know how long those antibodies last. So if it could avoid someone to, from going on a respirator, it has been used. So it's something we are familiar with, but we don't have enough information about because we're still trying to do studies, and it's hard to do a controlled study. It's hard to, when you know something may help somebody, how do you not give it to someone else? So there's a problem. But Dr. Hahn decided to say that blood plasma has reduced COVID-19 deaths by 35%. That's not true. Fortunately, he had enough good sense the following day to walk back that statement. And he got to that statement because of the difference between relative risk and absolute risk. Again, basic principles of public health. Relative risk is the number that tells you how much something you do, such as maintaining a healthy weight, can change your risk compared to your risk if you were overweight. So it's comparing you to yourself. So again, it's relative. An absolute risk is what you come to after you've done studies. It's the size of your own risk, meaning Absolute risk reduction is the number of percentage points that your own risk goes down if you do something protective, such as stop drinking. So absolute risk is looking at an entire population. He used the number 35%, which was a relative risk reduction. So that was a false number. And I have to think he knew that. I have to think that when you're a doctor and you become head of the CDC, you're the commissioner of the CDC, you know the darn difference. So why would you get up in front of the American public for an emergency press conference and lie to us? So what we know is that using it for this condition has possibly helped people. Why would the FDA approve anything, whether it be a drug or any treatment, if you don't know these things, one, we don't know the dose of convalescent plasma to give somebody. So how large a volume can you give somebody that will help them? How large a volume can you give them that will hurt them? And when do you give it? So if you thought about it with any drug, not knowing how much to give and when to give, bewilders me that you would then say we're approving this on any basis. The only basis it should be used for right now is to learn more about it so that we could go forward and use it as an effective treatment. And that's not what he said. So again, 
I'm disheartened. The people I look to, the people I pay and trust to protect me and to come up with good science are not doing that. And that's a problem. That's a big problem in this country right now. So I think we all have to really take a good hard look as to how the healthcare system in the United States works in general, but even specific to the scientists that we trust. Because I can tell you that with these outcomes, I don't trust them anymore, nor should any of you. Um, other things that have come up in, in the past week, and um, not to switch gears too much, the saliva test has been something that's been discussed. Um, it is a test that was developed here in Connecticut at Yale, and it was it is a test for COVID-19 where you don't use a nasopharyngeal swab. Nasopharyngeal swab is, well, the early one, and some still use, where they shove it way back into the back of your nasal passages. The other is one that we have been using at Mohegan Sun with Hartford HealthCare, where you only have to put the applicator in the lower part of the nose and take scrapings. Uh, but now they have developed a test where you can just spit into a tube and collect saliva. The advantage to that uh, is that you can get a faster turnaround time with regard to results, lower cost, and more importantly, it doesn't require any special treatment. So when we collect a nasal swab, before we transport it, it has to be put on ice or in a cooler, and it has to be put in a transport medium. In this case, you would save some of those costs of having a transport medium for the sample. So it, it was supported and funded by the NBA and the Major League Baseball Players Association. And the good thing about it is no one is saying, this is our test, we want to be paid a royalty. Uh, this is out there for public use and for more widespread use. Where do I think it's going to be effective? I don't think it's going to be effective in the bubble. So, for example, the NBA, despite developing this, is still using the nasopharyngeal test because they're still getting 24-hour turnaround. I think it's going to be helpful for mass testing in terms of cutting the cost of uh, transport media and things such as that. And I, I think we're getting to the point where we need to start testing people who are in rural communities, especially Native American communities. So if you could just spit into the tube, put it in a mailer, and get it out, that makes a big difference. So we're going to watch the saliva test and see how that develops in terms of its use. Uh, we've all heard today about the sad passing of Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick Boseman was an actor, um, a very successful actor, who died at the age of 43 from colon cancer. Um Mr. Bozeman, and, and this hits home because a friend of one of my daughters in her 30s um, found that she has a large colon tumor and had to have surgery. So colon cancer is still a major killer of Americans. The American Cancer Society recommends that screening begin with colonoscopy at age 45. The CDC has said age 50, but we're hoping they start diminishing that level. If you have a family history 
of colon cancer, you need to be even more aware of the signs and symptoms. Especially we're seeing larger numbers in younger people now and in African Americans. So the idea is a change in bowel habits, bleeding from the rectum, any blood in your stool, a lot of abdominal cramping, fatigue, weight loss. These are things that you have to be very mindful of and get to a physician. Don't worry about COVID-19 because you need to get screened and people need to get screened regularly. No one likes going for a colonoscopy. I grant you that. I've had many, many of those. But it is an important test, and we need to be mindful of that. This day in medicine, August 29, 1632, Dr. John Locke. He was an English physician, and in 1677, he gave us the first description of trigeminal neuralgia. As a neurologist, something I'm very interested in. Matter of fact, I saw a patient this week with it. Trigeminal neuralgia is an intense, sharp-shooting facial pain that has been described in the past as the most severe pain known to man. It is, again, a sharp-shooting pain. It is knife-like and intense. We do have treatments for it, though, now, um, several. Uh, we use medications like carbamazepine or Tegretol, as it's known. We use gabapentin. We use medications that were designed for epilepsy to treat this type of pain. You might say, what sense does that make? Well, we think that the pain itself comes from an abnormal discharge, an electrical discharge in the nerve itself, much like epilepsy is an abnormal discharge in the brain itself. So by using these drugs, we are able to effectively treat trigeminal neuralgia. As always, I'm impressed the fact that it was described um, back in 1677 um, by Dr. John Locke. With that, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Mr. Eric Smullen. Mr. Smullen is the Vice President of Operations for Hartford Healthcare Community Network. And we're going to be chatting about their campus care program, something parents are going to want to know about. If your child's on the way to college, getting ready to go to college, or at college now, you're going to want to know about campus care and everything Hartford Healthcare is doing for your child. Again, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. And as always, during the week, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com. I have a great email from this week from Margaret, but I'm not going to get to it this week, but for sure we're going to talk about that. Um, she presented me some great articles and research done by Dr. Paul Carr Cox on ALS. We're going to talk about that next week. With that, we're going to take that short break because you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Mr. Eric Smullen. Uh, Mr. Smullen is the Vice President of Operations for the Hartford Healthcare Community Network. He uh, has been at Hartford Healthcare. I got to know him in his previous position, uh, position as head of the Rehabilitation Network. Um, he is a trained physical therapist, and it's always good to have 
a provider, somebody who is involved in patient care and has been involved in patient care when they move to a position such as operations. So it's, it's great to be working again with Mr. Smullen. Eric, welcome to the show. So, Eric, just want to get into it. The campus care program is something that you have spearheaded with many other people. Can you tell our listeners what is campus care? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, uh, Hartford Healthcare over the past three to five years has absolutely changed what it is um, from a loosely affiliated group of providers to a very tight integrated health care delivery system. And what that's allowed us to do is to take a look at some special populations of care than their needs and, and be able to wrap all the services around what those populations of people need. Um, we've done that with a lot of things. Um, you're part of the Air Neuroscience Institute. And so um, as we look at kind of what, what all those needs are, people have neurological problems. Well, in the universities and colleges where they have congregate living and they have people that need specific young adults need the kind of care they need. This is what we decided. We would use this now new coordinated ability of the healthcare system to, to specifically bring things to them that they need and in a really coordinated fashion. So what was being done before campus care? In other words, in the universities that you've come to, and, and those include Connecticut college, right? Um, yep. uh, I, uh, Hartford, uh, uh, you heard yep. right university of hartford st joseph uh st joseph trinity college trinity college and uh in athletics we're over at loomis right now uh not in athletics uh, we, we don't serve loomis uh, but we serve about 11 of the high schools in the area and of course you know we're certainly serving the uh these universities and we're supporting their athletics programs as well so so what is why do people why are these universities going to a campus care system such as yours compared to what they did previously whatever that may be tony it's really interesting because as disorganized as healthcare was um um the universities are all siloed um the athletics column does not communicate with the health services column and 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 the real travesty is when people need specialty care you're your, your, the guides of your ship are general practitioners generally, and they ha they struggle to make make strong um, kind of relationships externally that give the students access to the best. And so, as Hartford Healthcare has been able to come together, we're now able to really coordinate easy access to the highest levels of specialty. And as you've been talking about the pandemic here for so many weeks, um, that was another element that that these campuses and schools are looking for. How do we bring in the best knowledge of the best physicians and actually help that apply that to their special environment? So since you brought it up, I think that's what's on most parents' minds now is COVID-19. I'm sending my child to a campus, to a congregate living facility, in essence. Uh, and uh, what are we doing as part of campus care to help mitigate the risk for, to some extent? Yeah, Tony, uh, it's on so many people's minds. It's on my mind. I've got a kid that's boarding uh, for high school, and I've got one that's up at Ithaca College. And so, you know, it's kind of scary when you think about, you know, how do you create a safe environment in a congregate living in, uh, situation? And um, and so uh, we're actually 
taken what we learned during the height of the pandemic in healthcare and our infectious disease physicians and our infection preventionists that are actually continuing to lead the healthcare response have been consulting with the leadership of these schools. And really the goal is to lay out a safe, the safest path. You know, um, I think just on the news right prior to me coming on, uh, we're highlighting that UConn has 50 positive cases there. Well, um, um, they did expect that. We, we expected that we would have positive cases, but the only way they're safely understanding their environment is to have amazing plans in place to expect it. And so that comes with testing, that comes with contact tracing, that comes with quarantine and isolation at the right time for the right people. And that's what Harvard Healthcare has been educating on how to do. And we have a testing service and we're supporting the universities with that testing. So they know what their bubble looks like, what the point prevalence is within their college campus. So I have to assume it's similar to the bubble we have over at Mohegan Sun for athletics right now for uh, fighters and things like that, where you're regularly testing um, various students within the bubble to make sure it's safe. Am I correct? You are correct. And, uh, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about, um, you know, some of the changes in the CDC recommendations. These schools are not changing. Um, so they are understanding what their bubble is. And so not only do we have a, 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 a good um, point prevalence within Connecticut, but once you understand your point prevalence within your bubble, it's much easier to manage it and you know what to expect and you know how to maintain it. And, um, and, and so these campuses are not just stopping testing asymptomatic people. They're ongoing testing to make sure that they, they really have line of sight. That's how you manage a pandemic, and that's how you keep your students and faculty and staff safe. Eric, you talked about some of the services available. Can you go over for our listeners, I mean, in addition to primary care, and I know your affiliation with the Go Health Network, uh, what other uh, specialties and uh, do we have available for the students at these universities? Well, so, you know, um, I think that was we spent a lot of time making sure we pulled the team together. And um, and we have, uh, you know, um, we have students and then we have subsets of populations like the athletics. And so globally, you know, students generally are pretty healthy. Um, um, but every now and then you, you need some specialty care. Um, and I'll just, uh, um, you know, our subset population of the athlete um, is is something that uh, we've really focused on making sure that that um, that we've put all the members of the team around. I'll use this for an example, but we've done it with other populations as well. Um, you have to have neurology. You have to have sports neurology. Whether you're an athlete or not, you get concussed. You have all kinds of other problems with the nervous system. Uh, we have sports neurologists. Uh, we have specifically sports orthopedists. And we have not only sports orthopedic doctors, but primary care doctors that specialize in sports for consultation. So there's other things that go wrong with your body in sports other than just, you know, breaking bones or hurting ligaments. Um, and I'll tell you what, of particular interest right now, after someone's been exposed to um, coronavirus and maybe has been sick or, or been exposed, there are other implications that affect different parts of the system. And uh, you may have talked about that before, what it does to the neurological system, but we also have impact to the cardiology system. Um, and really um, the brain and, and people's anxiety, depression, um, these kind of things. And so, 
um, surrounding these specialists, whether they're psychologists, psychiatrists, cardiologists, in a team that already is pre-created for when we have, when these general practitioners have the needs, that's what we're able to do. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest. We're discussing the Hartford Healthcare Campus Care Program with my guest today, Mr. Eric Smullen, who's the VP of Operations for Hartford Healthcare Community Network. If you have questions, you can call in at 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds with my guest today, Mr. Eric Smullen from the Hartford Healthcare Campus Care Program. Uh, Eric, in talking about and looking at campus care, uh, what was the first school? Where where, and when did you start? What was the first spot you put campus care into effect? Yeah, first we started with Trinity College. You know, it's practically, I mean, it is a stone's throw away from the campus of Hartford sure. Healthcare. And between the New Bone and Joint Institute and, and access to, you know, the other 30 um, specialties, uh, that are that are available really on campus there it it just made so much sense we have other partnerships innovation partnerships with trinity as well um with uh that that really made our working relationship very strong it grows pretty quickly i mean when i see the number of schools you're adding but mm-hmm. in your experience with trinity um what has been the most positive feedback i mean i could tell you uh, in my field, in, in sports concussion and, and sports medicine, that the biggest advantage for my practice is that all of these colleges are now following the same protocols in terms of when they get a consultation, when an athlete's going to get cleared to go back safely. So there's not a hodgepodge of how people do it. All the athletic trainers, all the team physicians, we're all on the same page moving forward. Um, what have been, what's been some of the other early feedback uh, from people who have participated globally in the campus care program? You know, Tony, I think that I hadn't really thought of it that way, and, but, but I'll tell you that uniformly now that I kind of review, people are just so pleased that they're, every time that they need to access a health-related service, through this campus, they're always talking to the top level of specialty. So it's um, so that's that, it's really amazing. They're like, I can't believe I connected with and you know th- these physicians. Our our service line leader for sports medicine is their team doctor. Um, when they're having infectious prevention problems, the lead uh, HH Hartford Healthcare infection preventionist or infectious disease physician, sports neurologist. I mean, these are the top leaders in their fields. And I don't think, I think they expected that they would get medical care, but I don't know that they were anticipating that the overwhelming level of interest that there is for the medical community and also affiliating with these campuses. I'm going to ask you a hard question, and and that is we, we could see the benefit in terms of the delivery of care. I mean, this is the way it should be. Someone gets ill and they get in right away. Uh, I know that uh, in our department, they're either in the office right away or on telemed right away getting to a specialist. But financially, has it been more feasible for the universities and colleges? 
Yeah, so we've been able to create, so as Harvard Healthcare is growing across the state, um, we're really, make, we want to make sure that the future choosers of healthcare have an opportunity to understand what an integrative healthcare delivery system feels like. And so we feel that it is absolutely imperative that we start with when they're starting to break, reach out on their own and make their own medical decisions about, you know, how, how I find care, what it feels like. Um, I think that they will absolutely recognize the difference that Harvard Healthcare brings to them when they have a, when their, when their, when their baseline experience is, is amazing. And so, um, we have been able to work with these colleges to take all the risk of employment of all these professionals off their plate. And so that's how pretty much we've been um, supporting them. There's no risk with this because we're supplying. We, we, we've been hiring those folks and, and uh, making sure that uh, they get the benefit of, of really no risk for their, for their employees. What's next for Campus Care? In other words, what, what do you have, uh, and I know you do, okay, there's always a plan in terms of uh, where you want to take it, uh, what things you want to add to campus care. Um, how do we make the system better? So there's a couple of things that we really have in the works, and it all relates to access. So we have some powerful things, and we've facilitated access like, like no more. But if you want um, imaging, you still go to an imaging center. Um, I see a time when when the, uh, these new ultrasound machines that are sitting, that, that really sit either in our in our specialist pocket could be coming right to the training room and on the field. So our specialists get to read the images that we collect right there on campus. I see this 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 transition to virtual health bringing care, the highest levels of care to people's dorm rooms and to the health centers. And so that these are outposts of the highest levels of specialties. So to me, that's really exciting time. And the, um, I will tell you that the universities are steeped in, in this concept of what are the innovative practices? What can give us, give us best, better value, which is higher quality at lower cost. And they're great, they're great places for us to try them in partnership with the university. Eric, I want to thank you. Thank you for taking time uh, with us today. And really thank you for taking such a, a great leadership role with uh, this Campus Care Network. I think it, it's a real winner. I think that it speaks to global health care in this country on how to start coordinating care so people get the best care for the least amount of investment. Um, and I think parents... Um, if you're involved in a university with campus care, or if you are not, you may want to bring that up with the university where your child attends and talk to some of the parents because there are plenty of stories out there that I've gotten feedback from of parents who just feel a lot better knowing um, that there is this amount of access. So, uh, Eric, thank you again for taking time today. Tony, I really appreciate you having me and giving me a chance to actually you know, tell our story. Great. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Um, one question that came up, and we have a couple of minutes for, is uh, one listener uh, emailed me a question about reinfection from COVID-19. Can you be reinfected? And apparently you can. And there are there is one uh, test, uh, one patient that came up here in the United States where they had a clear infection to COVID-19, recovered, 
and then had a new infection. The seriousness of that tells us that the virus is mutating. It's changing. And it's also telling us that the antibodies you produce from having COVID-19 are not necessarily lifelong, that there is a shelf life to those antibodies. So there are so many things that we don't know about this. And this virus is to be feared. You need to have a very healthy respect for this virus. More respect than our leaders have in the federal government. Because there's an old Sicilian saying that the fish stinks from the head. Okay? So you know that this all goes back to the White House and the President of the United States not having enough respect for this virus and what it has done to this country. I want to thank my studio producer, Mike Olko, today, who's been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're going to be back, and I'm going to be chatting about the global health care system here in the United States. Let's take a look at it. There have been a series of articles in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at not only our problems, but ways of correcting the health care system that affects everyone listening to this program. You could also reach me during the week at info at alessimd.com. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.